This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Now, you don't really believe all that stuff about the Bible, do you? That was um, the very first question right out of the gate on that old program, The O'Reilly Factor, that the news analyst was firing away at their guests that evening. Uh, The question, as I heard it, uh, seemed to me so pointed that as a young teenager sitting in the room, it actually caused me to look up and actually listen, um, which looking back was probably the point. But in spite of being caught off guard, the guests that evening seemed to do okay in their response I wonder, how many of us, and maybe some kind of a similar situation, maybe with a little less of the gotcha intimidation factor, how we would do if we were asked what we really believe about all that stuff in the Bible? And if digging in with a further journalistic instinct, if the follow-up questions were, how did you get there? And what do you do with that idea? If those were asked, how would you respond And how far would your explanation of those answers be able to go? I mean, being able to coherently explain what you believe about the Bible to a skeptical teenager or a curious friend or your own soul seems important. In fact, you might be the skeptical teenager, curious friend, or someone struggling with doubts, which have left you wondering where you really stand on important issues in life. And and it wouldn't be surprising, uh, given the unhelpful reality that the new virtue of doubt, disguised as an open mind, has become now the plague of the information age. The constant flow of new ideas and arguments have left many with more questions than answers. We oftentimes feel the weight of that old Italian proverb that says one fool can ask more questions than seven wise men can answer, right? But into that environment of uncertainty and skepticism steps the Bible, claiming to be the written record of God's special revelation to man. This book of books, unashamedly and non-pulsed, comes in making sweeping claims about God and life and you and me. With Jesus, the Son of God, is the central figure throughout it all. And if you've ever read it, you may have you know, picked up that the tone is not suggestive, but authoritative, right? Talk about contrast. So let me ask you, what do you really believe about all that stuff in the Bible? This week and next, I want us to consider what we believe and what we do with this book. And unsurprisingly, the Bible actually has itself plenty to say about this topic. In fact, in uh, the Apostle Peter's second letter in chapter 1, 
we find a similar situation to ours. Go ahead and turn there to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have a Bible. Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, was nearing here the end of his life when he writes to Christians who were encountering certain teachers and leaders who were challenging the apostles' message. As we piece together the situation, it would appear that they were saying that the apostles had made things up, that they had embellished things. Maybe they had, you know, added a little bit of a miracle here and there to kind of like beef up their credibility with people. And on top of all that, they were uh, claiming that their views on sin and on Jesus's return were outdated. Sound familiar? And with the apostles passing away, you can imagine that these Christians, they were struggling with a lack of certainty, a lack of of rootedness. They must have felt like someone was trying to, you know, pull the rug out from under their way of living. And of course, if you can get a Christian questioning the basis for the gospel message, then their effectiveness in living like Jesus and their fruitfulness in ministering to others and their own confidence in salvation plummets. It just plummets. And if you found yourself questioning everything that you've believed to one degree or another, you can probably relate to how these Christians were feeling just zapped. And here, Peter writes to them. He writes to them with the desire to correct that by way of reminder that they might be established in the truth. And so in verse 16, he he begins making this case by saying this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So this is Peter's first piece of evidence, and he goes on to start unpacking it, and he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is addressing the kind of authoritative witnesses that the apostles were as personal eyewitnesses to Jesus in all of his glory. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Here, Peter is putting out that the apostles' witness lined up with the Old Testament scriptures, and that that's another piece of the evidence. Next, he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star, that's an Old Testament reference to Christ, rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about what Peter's doing here, it reminds me of one of those old mathematical proofs, 
those old mathematical proofs in school, you know, where you'd have to list out your logic train of big ticket reasons and link, show the linkage together to show how your answer was correct. I hated doing those. Maybe you liked them, I don't know, but... But that's like what Peter's doing here. He's building this chain of evidences to establish these Christians in the correct way of living and believing that's based on authority, that's rooted in the very words and actions of God himself. That's Peter's point in making this case. It's the ultimate source of his message. These words that were first spoken and then written that they're from God himself. Then Peter as one of the apostles, along with the Old Testament prophets, that they are then carrying forward the very word of God to them and to us. And as such, it forms a kind of final authority for our lives. And when we get that down to street level, for you and me, uh, we see that it means that what we believe about the scriptures is seen in our response to the scriptures. What we believe about the scriptures is seen in our response to the scriptures. He's not talking about the scriptures like they're Milton's Paradise Lost, where this is just a great fictional story that you can learn good moral lessons from. And he's not talking about them like the, the Encyclopedia Britannica. They're just, you know, full of lots of historical facts that you may or may not be interested in from time to time. No, he's saying, we may known to you what the Son of God may known to us, and it perfectly aligns with what God the Father has been saying all along, as recorded in the Old Testament. Author and theologian J.I. Packer, talking about this very nature of God's word, he puts it this way, saying, two facts about the triune Jehovah are assumed, if not actually stated, in every single biblical passage, like they are here. This first is that he is king, absolute monarch of the universe, ordering all its affairs, working out his will and all that happens within it. The second is that he speaks, uttering words that express his will in order to cause it to be done. That is the kind of solid foundation that can't get any more solid And it also is one that then exerts authority on our lives. Think of it this way. If I was leaving my four boys at home for a couple of hours on one Saturday afternoon, and before I left, I, I, I wrote them a note. And it said something like, hey, boys, I'll be back in a bit. While I'm gone, don't forget to do your chores And don't eat the ice cream in the freezer. Love, Dad. Now, in my home, that note would constitute a kind of final authority. Or so I'd like to think. (laughs) But how they respond (laughs) to that note says a lot about what my boys actually believe, doesn't it? Because it's not hard to imagine that my third son, Seth, who maybe didn't see me write that note, would claim that his brothers were just making all this up so that they could have all the ice cream for themselves. And it wouldn't be hard to imagine that my second son, Jonathan, after waiting two whole hours, now has decided that 
maybe what I actually meant was I didn't mean that they couldn't eat the ice cream in that fridge. I was talking about the year and a half old inedible ice cream bars over there in the freezer chest. But that ice cream would be okay. And it's not hard to imagine (laughs) that one of them would eventually just decide that, sure, I wrote the note, but dad is taking too long, so I'm eating the ice cream. (laughs) But if they said to themselves, well, he's my dad. He loves me, and I love him, and so as his son, I'm not going to eat the ice cream. I'm going to do my chores. I'm going to wait. Well, with that kind of obedient response, then who wouldn't want to take that plain old ice cream and and, and build an Oreo crust and put in that ice cream and top it with peanut butter sauce and chocolate sauce and toasted pecans and and whipped cream? And we should get this done with because we're going to lose our focus here. But anyway, right? Who wouldn't want to reward that kind of response? It would show a response, not just about what they believed about the note, but ultimately what they believed about my authority. Those two things are interconnected. And friends, what we believe about the scriptures is seen in our response to the scriptures. And Peter is prompting a certain response here by showing how the very words of the message he brought to these Christians are accurate and powerful and special because they're from the Lord. And when, we, uh, when a Christian or a skeptic, then or now, is able to see that, then they can find an authority to root and to establish their lives on. And so let's take a closer look at Peter's evidences here and how we can respond. First, Peter says that Scripture is accurate. Scripture is accurate. Scripture is accurate in everything that it addresses. Now, how does he make that case? Well, in verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is a very important statement because, listen, If you wanted to increase your credibility with people, would you tell stories about how you messed up over and over and over again, like the disciples do in the Gospels? Would you pull in unlikely and discredited witnesses to make your case like women were in the first century and yet are the first ones to encounter the risen Christ and believe? Would you make claims that are easy to disprove but very difficult to prove, like a resurrection, miracles, crowds of thousands of people? No. No, you don't do that unless it's accurate. Unless that's the case. That's his point. They weren't following cleverly devised myths. Next, Peter says that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses. They didn't hear about this from someone else. No, they claim that they have seen these things with their own eyes. Scholarship has shown again and again the authenticity of the New Testament writings, their their authorship and exhaustive proof for their timing, matching their first century claims. But the question remains... For them, as eyewitnesses, whether or not they can be trusted 
in their testimony. If you know much about history, you likely know that the early church was intensely persecuted, intensely persecuted, and that the apostles gave up everything, including their lives. It would seem that they passed the ultimate eyewitness test in dying for their testimony. And what did they gain for it? Well, materially speaking, they gained nothing. But if they were accurate in what they were saying, in reality, they gained everything. Finally, verse 19, Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Meaning that the way that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies showed both their accuracy and the accuracy of Peter's message. If you've been here for any stretch of time, you've likely heard from this pulpit example after example of how Old Testament, uh, how the Old Testament foreshadowed redemption through a Savior, which Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And we've shown again and again how it's not being fulfilled in vague generalities, but in high definition. That's the kind of accuracy that shows links in a very long chain of evidence, and it should grow our confidence. Now, although a lot more could be said here for Scripture's accuracy, what's the response it provokes? Well, like with any decision, you and I will have to decide what we believe ultimately by faith, The kind of faith that the Bible calls for is not blind faith. Um, The accuracy of the apostles and the prophets' message recorded in the scriptures should evoke in us a response to want to learn it, to learn it. Even if you're a skeptic, wouldn't it be best to consider the actual thing itself to make a decision? And for the Christian, Peter, in verse 15, right before this passage, he specifically states that his hope for these Christians was that they could recall these truths at any time because of this reminder. After all, we learn those things and we commit them to memory that really matter for our lives. Those are the things we invest time in learning. But have we disconnected that from the scriptures? I've read that Bart Ehrman, uh, a graduate from my alma mater, who is now a very famous atheist and college professor, they will ask a, a, a room full of students at the beginning of a term uh, whether or not they believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. He teaches at a southern uh, university, and, and he says a, a lot of people raise their hand to say that they, that they actually believe that. And then he says that he gets out a copy of Harry Potter, and he says, how many of you have read this book from cover to cover? It says a lot of people raise their hands and so forth. And then he says he holds up a copy of the Bible, and he says, How many of you have read this book cover to cover? It says not a lot of hands go up at that point. His point, do you really believe that this is the word of God and you don't even bother reading it? In church, I wonder 
how we would fare. Because friends, what we believe about the scriptures is seen in our response to the scriptures. So let's allow the accuracy of the scriptures to ignite in us not only a desire to repent, perhaps, of our laziness or our willful resistance to the word, but to also ignite in us a desire to learn, a desire to understand the word of God. Now, building on that response, Peter also shows us that the scriptures are powerful. Scripture is powerful. The scriptures can change our lives. And in verse 19, uh, Peter says that we have the prophetic word now more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Why should we pay attention to the scriptures according to Peter in this verse? Because the scriptures contain a kind of glory, a kind of weighty authority that is like light in a dark room. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God's words have power. And here, Peter points out that God's word has the power to bring clarity to our lives. Clarity. Imagine with me, if you and I, we were, we were sitting down for a cup of coffee and a conversation, and I was to actually have asked you, you know, do, do you really believe, you know, all that stuff in, uh, in the Bible? And if you were to say yes, and I asked you why, and you said something along the lines of, well, because I believe it's the Word of God, what well, wouldn't surprise me at all if we were to dig into that, if your reasoning for that belief had more to do with the power of the scriptures than any aspect of accuracy or reliability or whatever. Whether it was the way that the Bible explained to you good and evil or sin or creation or design or suffering or purpose or eternity or whatever else, what often persuades people like you and I is when we encounter the scriptures for ourselves. And we find that they explain our lives to us. And when the world around you begins to come into focus because of the scriptures, well, that's powerful evidence of their authority and of their source. When we think about the the kind of extent and of clarity that they provide to us, it's immense. It's not like when we go over to the optometrist and we spend 30 minutes going better one or two, you know, better one or two, right? It's, it is so much more than that. It is like somebody handing us a flashlight in the dark of night so that we can go from seeing practically nothing to having enough light to get by until daylight comes. Friends, that's the kind of power of the scriptures. They give us clarity for life today until Jesus returns someday. And when we see the power of the truth that they hold, it should evoke in us a response. After all, what is our natural response to light in a dark room? We trust it. We trust it. 
We make our moves by it. Granted, granted, it is still hard for us, and oftentimes it can feel very risky for us to believe and practice what the scriptures say about marriage or work or our words or forgiveness and more. But every time we do, we not only show a trust in the scriptures, but ultimately a trust in our Heavenly Father. And it may not always feel intuitive, especially at first. But this is part of being God's children, if it's all true. To return to our analogy, we show trust in that God loves us, that God knows what's best for us, when we don't just follow our feelings, but we take him at the plain meaning of his written word. We do our chores, we wait to eat the ice cream, and we stop looking for loopholes, and instead we trust that the God who knows what's best for us will not only save us from injury through our obedience, but he will give us a reason for hope an ice cream cake to come. Which brings us to our last characteristic that Peter points out to these Christians. And simply put, it's that Scripture is special. Scripture's special. Why are these Scriptures authoritative? Well, not just because they're accurate about what happened and what was said, and not just because they're powerful uh, in giving someone clarity about life. No, but because they're special in their origin. In verse 21, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, for Peter, the word scripture is a technical word. It doesn't refer to just any, you know, important religious writing, but to divinely inspired writing. And he wants to be clear that Scripture is not the result of someone's good ideas or their own interpretation of spirituality, but the work of the Holy Spirit. But how can that be? Well, the little word here, carried, here is the Greek word for pharaoh. It means uh, to ferry something across. Um, Picture wind filling the sails of a ship. That's the idea here. That means that God didn't drop golden tablets from the sky. Rather, he breathed his words through the prophets and the apostles, using them to create the scriptures. Ergo, the scriptures should retain both a sense that someone like a Peter, someone like a Paul wrote them, but they should also be special and different. They should not be something less, but something more than what an ordinary man would or could even write. That's the kind of final authority that the scriptures claim. Given that idea, it makes complete sense that Peter as he traces this message back to this point, then drops the case and walks away. Again, given this idea, it's why the entire world can be seen in support of the Scripture's claims, but no amount of accuracy, reliability, or even life change can confer a higher authority than the claim of God as being the author. And given the heights of this claim, how unique it is, They wonder that uh, someone like Jonathan Edwards here said that unless men may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, by the sight of its glory, 
It is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough or effectual conviction of it at all. They may see without this, see a great deal of probability of it, and may seem reasonable to them, given the credit to what learned men and historians tell them. But to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all, confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long-continued torments and to trample the world underfoot and to count all things but dung for Christ, the evidence that they can have from history cannot be sufficient. So friends, unless the Lord opens our eyes like Peter to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by faith alone, that we may learn a lot about the Bible, but still miss the ultimate point, along with the joy and the freedom it brings when it establishes our lives on its authority. But if he does do that, if the response to the word of God happens, it evokes in our hearts a response of celebration. We celebrate the word. Like a picture of someone who we love. We don't look at the picture and say, wow, what a gorgeous picture frame. Or, wow, check out how it's perfectly hung. Right? Or, wow, look at the kind of paper it's printed on. No. In the same way that we don't celebrate the ink and paper and binding of our copy of the scriptures, but the one who they present Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, we celebrate the one whose beauty and whose truths and whose accomplishments and whose commands are being presented. We celebrate the scriptures because of the Savior, Jesus Christ, they present to us. And so celebrate it, frame it, paint it, carve it, talk of it, wear it, write about it, sing it, share it, and in every good and godly way imaginable, celebrate it. Because ultimately, we celebrate the author who's accurate and powerful and final authority has been revealed through it. Let's pray together. Lord, we repent that in our stubbornness, we have not often come to you with a desire that when we come to your word, that we might submit with a joy and a celebration, but that oftentimes our heart has been rebellious, skeptical, resentful. Father, we pray that you would soften in our hearts today a desire, a willfulness, that you would soften in our hearts today a kind of celebration of your word where we are able to look on it with a joy that comes from seeing our heavenly Father's handiwork on display. I pray that we would have a joy in your word, that when we come to it, we no longer wonder whether or not it's trustworthy. We instead come to it with a wonder of what it is that you are going to teach us next. Or would you cultivate in our hearts a fresh response, a fresh desire to learn it, 
a fresh desire to understand it, a fresh desire to obey it in every way imaginable. Lord, teach us how we can be established, rooted as a child of yours on your authority in our life. We pray these things, Lord, with the expectant heart that as you open your word to us in the quietness of the morning or the wonder of the afternoon or the evening time, that we would once again receive it with joy. I pray this in your name. Amen.